Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. From KCBS Radio, this is Bay Current. I'm Doug Sovereign, and today for Matt Pittman and our guest... On Bay Current for Tuesday, March 15th, is Lee Kravitz. He's a Bay Area author. He's written a couple of acclaimed nonfiction books, and now he's out with his first novel, The Last Confessions of Sylvia P., a debut novel from Harper, major publisher. And Lee, thanks for being with us. It is an awesome, awesome pleasure. Thank you. And I wanted to have you on, Lee, because, first of all, this book is fascinating, and it's a good read, and it's getting a lot of buzz, um, great early reviews. Um, but I, I want to tell people what this book is about, but maybe I should let you tell them what it's about. Maybe that would be easier. You probably have it down. <laughs> and I've worked on this pitch for years, man. I'm ready. So yeah, tell people, what you. is The Last Confessions of Sylvia P? Yeah, so The Last Confessions of Sylvia P. So it's about and Sylvia P is Sylvia Plath, um, uh, the famous poet. And the novel really talks about how she, it, it shows readers how she becomes the poet that we all know and love today. And we see her on her journey as she, begins to come up with the idea for the bell jar, writes the bell jar, and then executes on it. Um, but that's really sort of the, the almost a subplot. Really what we're seeing is uh, Sylvia Plath through the lens of three different women in three different eras responding to Sylvia as a, uh, as a, as a person, as a poet, as a writer, and we get to see how the bell jar influences all three of them. It's also, there's, there's sort of a mystery behind it as well. The, the novel opens up with, um, in, in uh, modern day, uh, there's a, uh, an auction house in, in Boston, Massachusetts, where um, these, these two brothers who flip houses have discovered a lockbox. And within the lockbox, they find three different notebooks that seem to contain the original handwritten draft of the bell jar. So the curator, her name is Esty, uh, winds up going on a, a journey of discovery to figure out how these notebooks wound up in a random attic and how they connect both to, um, you know, to the bell jar and to Sylvia Plath as well as to Esty herself, which is sort of a, a, a big discovery as we go along. Yeah, don't give away too much here. <laughs> no spoilers, but yeah, none. Uh, the Bell Jar, of course, an iconic novel that I'm sure many of our listeners have read. And if not, they might be inspired to after they read your book or hear about it. Um, what made you want to write about this? Where did, where did the inspiration for this come from? Yeah, so, I mean, everybody's read The Bell Jar. And if you have, you've heard of The Bell Jar. And even if you don't remember reading The Bell Jar, but you've read it, it sort of lives in your mind, in your body, in some way, shape, or form. It's always there. Oh, yeah, I've heard of the bell jar. It's about Sylvia Plath. Um, and so I had read it many years ago. Um, I was trying to become a writer. 
Um, I had worked in book publishing for years. I worked at PBS doing TV shows there. And I was just really struggling. Um, I, I couldn't figure out, I knew how to write. I just didn't know what to write. So I wound up going back to grad school and becoming a therapist. Um, so I was 30 years old. I'm getting my master's degree in psychology and I'm doing some postgraduate work at a mental hospital um, here in Menlo Park, actually. Uh, it's the VA. Coincidentally, it was the same mental hospital that Ken Kesey worked at when he um, was at Stanford uh, at the Stegner program, and uh, he started writing One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So there was, there was something in the air, I think, when I was sort of walking through the ward, and uh, there was a, um, a kiosk where all the patients were sort of waiting uh, with all these sort of paperback novels just to sort of, you know, while away the time. And the bell jar was there, which I thought was sort of an interesting sort of choice to put mm -hmm. in this in this in this kiosk. Um, I, I, I suspect someone brought it and left it there and it had just been there for a long time. So I started reading it. And as I'm reading it um, over like a, a three day period, um, it occurs to me it's not just the story of Sylvia Plath. So the bell jar is sort of a thinly veiled memoir of of her time in 1952 um, being hospitalized for bipolar disorder at McLean Hospital. And um, so we have this sort of thinly veiled memoir, um, but it's also, I, I figured out, or I saw, it was a parallel story of the birth of something called confessional poetry. So confessional poetry, when we think about poetry today, we think about like raw and personal sort of uh, gritty poetry about, you know, the personal I is what we call it. Um, but before 1950s, you know, early 60s, that's not what poetry was. We had movements like surrealism, romanticism, the metaphysical poets. Um, we had the graveyard poets, all these poets, either they, they were speaking about political times, they were speaking about nature and the things around us. But confessional poetry was the first time we started getting about, you know, the raw emotion and the raw thoughts from people. Um, and that did not start in a university. It didn't start in a, in a university town or a sort of a, a, a bucolic sort of area. It was born in mental hospitals. Um, you had Sylvia Plath, Anne Sexton, Robert Lowell, all of these sort of poets who were all suffering from mental illness, most of them bipolar disorder. And they emerge in Boston, Massachusetts, all, and they converge at the same time at actually at Boston University. And they start to write this, po this, po this poetry that sort of changed the way that literature um, and poetry uh, uh, evolved from that point on. It changed everything. And I was like, that is a story I want to tell. That's fascinating. I guess no one had told that story. But were you that into confessional poetry or knew much about it before this occurred to you while you were reading The Bell Jar? I, you know, I didn't. But, you know, I, I knew enough about it to be sort of intrigued. Like, I was like, isn't it fascinating that Sylvia Plath was in a mental hospital, you know, 1950s, and she comes out writing about this, this sort of confessional poetry. And I seem to remember that Anne Sexton around this time also had a similar experience. And I was like, and then I, I, I went through and I, I saw that they had all both been at Robert Lowell's sort of poetry workshop at Boston University in the, in the early 60s or late 50s and early 60s. And look, wouldn't you know it, Robert Lowell also had bipolar disorder and was hospitalized multiple times. And boy, isn't it cool that so many of this, you know, these writers have similar experiences and all of their poetry 
is very similar in tone and subject matter as well. And you go back in confessional poetry, it really does. It's sort of the, the moment that literature changes. You can't listen to rock music today and not hear Sylvia Plath. You can't read memoirs today and not see Sylvia Plath. You can't read poetry today um, without seeing Sylvia Plath in almost everything. Do you think people recognize how influential she and the rest of those poets were and how that movement, and it's interesting because it's evolving right around, well, a little bit later maybe than the Beats, um, mm -hmm. how, the kind of impact that had? You know, I, I think people who appreciate, um, you know, Sylvia Plath and Sexton, you know, uh, uh, Snodgrass, um, you know, uh, uh, yeah, Lowell, I think that they, they appreciate the poetry, but I'm not entirely sure that most people would actually stop and think that while the movement was so influential, we just read it today and go, yeah, I see myself in it. Mm -hmm. um, that's the thing that's fascinating about Sylvia Plath is that you can read her work and it's still relevant today, 60 years after the fact. Why? Because she's writing about these universal truths about thoughts and feelings and even behaviors that back then we didn't talk about. We, we weren't allowed to talk about, women in particular, we're not supposed to talk about this sort of stuff. We're talking about lust, um, uh, uh, death, abortion, incest, grief, um, all of these things we're not supposed to talk about. Mm -hmm. Well, Marianne Moore and Snodgrass, Elizabeth Bishop, all of these, these poets start talking about these things that you're not supposed to talk about. But when you start to listen and read what they are talking about, you see yourself in it because who doesn't have these sorts of thoughts or experiences? I mean, these are universal experiences. Now, the only thing we don't talk about is Bruno, as we know. So you're getting your, exactly right. So you're in your training as a therapist, you get this idea, but then you go on for many years to write a couple of acclaimed nonfiction books, one about, mm -hmm. you know, suicides in, in, in Palo Alto. Uh, it took a long time for this to germinate into a novel then. It did. In fact, my um, I talked to my agent about this a lot. We, we had an early discussion after Strange Contagion, my nonfiction came out. He was like, so what are you going to work on next non nonfiction wise? I was like, I'm not going to work on nonfiction. And he goes, Lee, 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 <laughs> Lee. He has this very deep voice. Um, please tell me you're not going to work on a novel. And I said, I'm working on a novel. And he goes, Lee, every nonfiction writer wants to write, be a novelist. And, and you're not going to make any money off of this. And we need to stick with nonfiction. And I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. So um, I work on this novel. I turn it in and he called me back and was like, this, you are now going to be a novelist. This is going to be it. Like we have a lot of work to do, but we're going to get you there. And I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a journalist, I'm a news reporter, but I'm also writing a novel and it, yeah, to move from fact to fiction, it, it's a little bit, it's scary. It's difficult, but you get this freedom. Uh, but those oh, choices, yeah. choices that you make along the way dictate which way things go. How hard was it for you to adapt to that, to, to not just making up what happens, but wow, I can take this any way I want and it'll be completely right. different as if I do. You know, <clears throat> I think it, it was, the transition was not easy, but once I had it, it was like riding a bike. It frees you up so much creatively. Um, and you also sort of in the back of your mind go, God, I, I hope <laughs> I hope I don't embarrass any of the people that, you know, I'm sort of basing this on. And I hope I'm doing this well and I'm doing it right. That's the best you can do. I mean, I'm writing about Sylvia Plath. Sylvia Plath is, has been dead for about, you know, almost 60 years now. And, you know, she's not going to be here to 
to comment on this. Mm. So uh, you, you do have sort of an obligation to treat, you know, the historical figures with a certain kind of respect. And I don't mean put them in the best light, but you want to be honest and true about who they are. So, you know, Sylvia makes appearances through this novel in very strategic, strategic places. And I, I was very, very careful that I captured her tone, her thoughts, her, her spirit and her soul as best as I could when she made an appearance, because I had to get that right. So you're training as, as a therapist and you've worked in the Bay area and you've written about that. Uh, obviously that fueled your interest in, in this subject matter and pursuing this. I mean, that's what piqued your interest in the first place. How much did that inform the way you wrote this and the, you know, the way you looked at what mental illness and treatment was like, I mean, in the fifties, they didn't call it bipolar. You know, I, I think, um, as a, a novelist and as a therapist, you come at each person and each character with a sense of empathy and deep, deep understanding. You know, you hear people say things like, I read this book and the characters were so despicable, I couldn't stand them. Well, the, the truth is, you know, what, what's the difference between a despicable character that you can't stand and a despicable character that you root for? And the difference is deep, deep empathy for your character. And so, you know, I think, you know, I, I, I write about some some pretty dark, you know, people in the sense that they do some, some awful things to each other, um, but also some wonderful things. And you, you know, I, I looked at it like, you know, I saw the human underneath the, you know, um, the longing and the hurt and the brokenness. Um, and I think that happens as a therapist too. You're in a room with somebody who has very awful thoughts or has done some pretty despicable things. I mean, I was in a room when I was in training with somebody who was a Nazi, like a full blown showed up in a, in a, in, you know, in a, in an SS uniform carrying a copy of Mein Kampf. And you have to sit there with this person and, and see who they are as human beings beyond, you know, sort of the damage that they bring to you. And so we call that unconditional positive regard. And that's what I tried to do with this book. Um, the other thing is, you know, I really wanted to portray mental illness in a very realistic way. So we see Ruth Barnhouse, who is Sylvia Plath's psychiatrist, who is very influential in teaching Sylvia how to become a writer and a poet that she becomes. Um, and she shows up in 1952 as the first female psychiatrist in New England. I mean, this is a, this is a brand new thing. And she comes bringing all new ways of thinking about psychi psychiatric help. Before you've got people who are, uh, you know, strictly Freudian therapists, um, and the only techniques that they really use beyond sort of the, the analysis is electroconvulsive shock therapy and insulin shock therapy, which worked, but it was very sort of you know very violent, right? Ruth Barnhouse's character in the novel is the person who's supposed to usher in the future of, of psychiatric help. Um, so she looks at the humanistic approach. She takes her patients out of the hospital and teaches them how to be human again uh, by having them interact with, with uh, as beekeepers, as taking them out of the, you know, the, the, the facility and, and walking them through downtown Boston in the middle of a snowstorm. I mean, these sort of like, you know, sort of very human um, interactions with the world are the things that bring them back to life. And so I really wanted to showcase that as well. And the, you know, the, the ending is sort of a shock. It, it, it's, um, I've actually, I haven't gotten ha uh, hate mail, but I've definitely gotten mail that has said, um, 
I, you know, I never saw this coming and it is sort of a controversial ending, uh, which is exactly where I wanted it to land. I wanted people to, to read it and go, I'm surprised by this, but it, it makes sense. And, but in order to get there, you've got to go through this sort of journey of twists and turns. And the way that the novel works is it's three different stories that seem almost completely separate from one another, except for the fact that Sylvia Plath is in each of them in some way, shape or form. And the last third of the book, there's a, there's a twist where all three storylines lock together and take you veering in the opposite direction you thought you were going in. That was the whole shape of the book when I started writing it. I knew that's where I needed it to go. And then I spent four years piecing it together. Well, it's a really good book. I have not finished it yet, and I don't want to know how it ends. <laughs> but Yeah, uh, good, good. It's really good, folks. Uh, you're going to want to read it. Last Confessions of Sylvia P. And so, Lee, this book obviously um, came from, you know, the work you were doing as a therapist. So what happens next? Are you working on another novel? Yes, yeah. So the um, uh, I'm, I'm full, uh, you know, leaning full, what is it, full bore into mm -hmm. the idea of uh, my next book and doing fiction, fiction, fictions. I will say this book reads really, I mean, people will not be able to tell how much work went into this. It reads effortlessly and seamlessly, and they won't know you went through seven drafts over four years and the, <laughs> things changed completely in a lot of ways, but it, it's, it's, it's beautifully written. And uh, without giving anything away, is your next book at all related to, to psychotherapy? Um, there's a psychotherapy element to, I think, to all the work that I'm going to be doing, mm -hmm. um, but um, it's 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 not. This one actually is, it, you know, it's sort of a, a, a another literary puzzle that goes back with multiple storylines and mm -hmm. um, sort of has sort of that that puzzle piece sort of structure to it. But it's 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 similar but but different, and so it's like it's it's sort of the last confessions of Sylvia P is sort of the start, and then the, the next book is going to be sort of a much, you know, it's a bigger canvas, so to speak. Mm. Maybe it'll become the Dan Brown of literary mystery fiction. Psychological, like yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks so much. Lee Kravitz, Last Confessions of Sylvia P. from Harper. Thanks for being with us on Bay Current. Thank you for having me. Our thanks to Lee Kravitz, his book, The Last Confessions of Sylvia P. New episodes of Bay Current are out every day. We'd love to be part of your daily routine. Please subscribe to Bay Current on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, just about anywhere you listen, we are there. We're also on YouTube on the KCBS Radio YouTube page. That's it for today's Bay Current. I'm Doug Sovereign, and for Matt Pittman today, we'll chat with you again tomorrow. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. 
Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.